Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. I want you to imagine for just a moment what it would be like uh, to be an ambassador of the United States to a foreign country. I was thinking about folks I've met in this church. I don't think, raise your hand if I've totally got this wrong, that we have any former or current ambassadors in this room. But I think that if I was an ambassador of the United States to a foreign country, that would be both thrilling and humbling. Some of you may be thinking, I'd never want to do that. I think it would be thrilling and humbling. It would be thrilling because you would get to represent an entire nation and speak on their behalf. Right? That's what an ambassador does. Whatever you say to their head of state is what the United States says to their head of state. That's pretty thrilling. It would be humbling because the authority you have isn't your own, right? It's been delegated to you by the executive branch of our federal government. You've been appointed to say what the U.S. president, and, and by extension the entire nation that elected him, tells you to say. Your authority has been entrusted to you by another. But you don't have to be an ambassador to experience that. It's no different if, if you attend a conference or you go visit a client or you make a sale as an employee of a company. In that moment, you, you represent, you're the face of that corporation. You're the face of that organization. What, what if you watch someone's children as a babysitter? the same principle, right? You, you, you represent the authority of their parents such that for them to not listen to you is for them to not listen to who? Mom, dad. How they respond to you ultimately is a reflection of how they're responding to mom and dad. You're a representative. And so whether it's for a nation or a company or parents, you, you don't have independent authority. Yet the authority you do have is, is very real, such that for someone to ignore or reject you is for them to ignore or reject whoever gave you that authority. And friends, I think that's a good picture of the church. All those images. I like ambassador over babysitter, okay? But it's a good picture of the church. Why? Because as the church of Jesus Christ, we are God's ambassadors.
ambassador in the world. We're his representative on earth. And for the last few weeks, we've been in this a series of sermons called A Community Like No Other. And the genesis of that series is pretty simple, okay? All kinds of organizations all around us claim to offer a sense of community, of sense of belonging, a sense of place in the world. So what makes the church any different? What makes us any different? Well, we learned from Ephesians 2 that we have a unique identity. This community that we have isn't something we created. It's something God creates. It's not first and foremost something we do. It's something we are in Christ. We have a unique identity. And then we learn from 1 Peter 2 that we also have a unique mission. So our community doesn't exist for our own sake. It's a gift from God given, designed to advance the mission of the gospel. Unique identity, unique mission. And Jesus' words here in Matthew 16 teach us that we also have a unique authority. That's the third answer to the question. What, What makes the community of the church any different. We have a unique identity, a unique mission, and we have a unique authority. In other words, as a church, we're God's ambassador. We're his representative in the world. And that means that you don't just have some sort of cool name tag or shirt, but you've been authorized by God to declare his judgments on his behalf. That's a pretty big deal. And I want to acknowledge at the outset that that this passage tends to stir up a lot of controversy and debate. If you have an ESV study Bible, uh, you might note in the notes that the very first thing it says is, this is one of the most controversial passages in the entire Bible. And you may be thinking, why in the world would Matthew choose that passage to preach on? Why not just pick something else? Well, the reason I, I chose this passage, friends, is because I think the Lord, through this text, Jesus' words here, wants to give our church courage. Holy courage. Why do I say that? Well, outside of these walls, what are we told? What are we told? Whether or not you're a member of the church, whether or not you're a Christian, what what are you told? Well, we're, we're told there is no truth. There's only your opinion and my opinion. And if you want to believe Jesus is the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through him, good for you. It's for real, good for you. That doesn't mean I have to. And it certainly doesn't mean you're right. You believe what you believe, I believe what I believe, and that's about all we can say. Well, if you Pools are opening all around the place right now. So think about that as like a pool we swim in. If if you swim in that pool, that air, that culture long enough, you know what starts to happen if you're a Christian? I think we get timid. We lose our courage. We, We start thinking and even speaking about Jesus in terms of what we think or what we believe, or what works well for us. We, we think and speak as if we have no more authority beyond our own personal experiences and thoughts and opinions. Friend, 
please hear me when I say this. What you think or believe or feel is true doesn't matter one bit. It doesn't. What matters is what is actually true. I can believe gravity doesn't exist. And I can hurl myself off a 10-story building confident it doesn't exist. And it doesn't exist because I don't think it exists. And it doesn't exist because I don't feel like it exists. And it doesn't exist because I don't believe it exists. If you believe it exists, good for you. But I don't, so it doesn't. What's going to happen when I jump off that building? Why? Because gravity really exists. Friends, we need courage. We need courage to speak the truth about Jesus in a world that disavows the very idea of truth. And that courage, that boldness comes in part, I believe, from understanding and remembering the kind of authority that King Jesus has entrusted to us as his church. We don't speak for ourselves, we speak for him. I'd summarize this whole passage this way. Jesus builds his church by entrusting those who confess his name with the spiritual authority to declare God's judgments on his behalf. That's a mouthful, so let me read it again. Jesus builds his church by entrusting, what's the church? Those who confess his name with spiritual authority to declare God's judgments on his behalf. Yeah, that's meant to give us courage. So, so how, do we, how do we end up with that kind of ambassadorial authority? Well, controversy aside, I think the reasons here are simple enough couple answers to that. How do we end up with this authority? First, because the Father reveals the Son. Second, because the Son builds the church. And third, because the church represents the Son. That's the logic, and that's where we're going to go. So let's look at point number one. How do we wind up with this ambassadorial authority? First, because the Father reveals the Son. Look at verse 13. Jesus begins here by asking his disciples a a rather impersonal question. Verse 13, who do people, other people, say that the Son of Man is? Well, we know from previous references to the Son of Man in Matthew's gospel that that Jesus is clearly speaking about himself. That's why the parallel passages in, in Mark 8 or Luke 9 read, who do people or Who do the crowds say that I am? So he's speaking of himself here. So what do the disciples say? Some people think you're John the Baptist. Some people think you're Elijah. Some some say you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Well, what what do all those titles have in common? Well, they're all honored figures in Israel's history who functioned as God's spokesmen. They are also all human beings. None of them are divine. I don't think the popular answer to Jesus' question has changed a whole lot in the last 2,000 years. If you took a a broad sample of opinions about Jesus' identity, you would probably hear answers like what? He was a good teacher. 
He was a moral example. He was a religious figure. He, he was the founder of Christianity. Plenty of people seem to respect Jesus and wear the jewelry accordingly because they see him as an exemplary human being. You, you assert, you claim Jesus is fully human. Nobody's going to bat an eye. Of course he's human. I knew that. But Jesus doesn't stop there. You notice he immediately shifts the conversation. Look at verse 15. From cultural observation to personal evaluation. Verse 15, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? That's the question that ultimately matters, right? Not, not what do other people say about Jesus, but what do you believe about Jesus? Who do you say I am? And in many ways, the, the entire Gospel of Matthew has been building to this moment. All the drama and, whoa, look at that authority, and I don't want anybody following him. From the crowds to the Jewish religious leaders, everybody's wrestling with this question up to this point in Matthew's Gospel. Who is Jesus? Well, to be a prophet, one who speaks on behalf of God, uh, was one thing the Jewish mind, to be the long-awaited Messiah, the anointed son of David who would, who would set Israel free from captivity and, and establish the kingdom of God on earth, that was an entirely different thing. And yet that is precisely what one of Jesus' disciples, Simon Peter, recognized Jesus was. Look at verse 16. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, which is simply the, the Greek translation for the Hebrew Messiah. You're the Messiah. You're the anointed one. Do you, do you ever wonder why Jesus didn't just come out and announce that? Why, why didn't Jesus use the title himself first? There's, there's no point in Matthew's gospel up to this point where he identifies himself as the Christ, as the Messiah. Why, so why not just come out and say, hey guys, check it out. I'm the anointed one who's going to bring to fulfillment all of God's redemptive purposes in the world. Are you ready? Okay, one, two, three, Christ, go. That's what I would do. Why, why doesn't Jesus do that? Well, he's not being coy here, Okay. He's forcing his disciples to, to wrestle with what they believe. He doesn't want anyone, starting with his disciples, to just blindly adopt or agree with whatever title he uses. He wants them, as he wants you, friend, to recognize, believe, and trust in him for who he really is. And Peter recognized Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, but notice, not just the Christ. What did he also say in verse 16? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So if Christ emphasizes Jesus' divine mission as the anointed Messiah, Son of God emphasizes his divine identity. Translation, it's one thing to do the works of God. It's quite another thing to actually be God. And Peter asserts both. 
as he reflects on all he's seen Jesus do and say during his ministry, Peter recognizes Jesus is God's anointed, the Christ, because he's God's son. He's the divine descendant of David, promised in 2 Samuel 7. He's the the son of God. Psalm 2, ruling over the nations. In other words, Peter's saying, Jesus, you're not just a good teacher. You're not just another prophet. You're God. And not a new God or another God or my new version of God, but the son of the living God. The son of who? The son of Yahweh. Peter is a Jew. Is, he's explicitly identifying Jesus within the framework of Jewish monotheism. And notice how Jesus responds. Peter gets it right. So what does Jesus say? Verse 17. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Friends, there there is a critical role for Christian apologetics, okay? For for an intellectual defense of the faith and, and helping people overcome obstacles to trust in Jesus. Please hear this. Removing intellectual obstacles is entirely different than opening blind eyes. I I love the simplicity of, of Jesus' words in John 6, 63. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Oh, wow. No help in doing what? No help in taking hearts and minds like ours that have, been, that have been darkened by sin, willfully incapable of seeing Jesus for who he really is, and enabling us to suddenly see and trust and obey him as the savior of the world that he actually is. That transformation requires what, friend? A miracle. A supernatural work of the Father acting through the illuminating ministry of the Spirit. What's Jesus' point? You can't reason your way into Christianity. You can't talk yourself into that. You need the Father to open your eyes to see Jesus for who he really is. You can't, parents, you can't argue or convince your children to submit to the Savior, okay? You need the Father to open their eyes to see Jesus for who he really is. When when you're sharing the gospel with a non-Christian friend, the one thing you most need to see happen in that moment is not something you have any power to accomplish. What's that? To open their eyes to see Jesus for who he really is. That is only something the Father can do through the Spirit. And that's humbling. That's really humbling. But it should also make us confident. Why? Because that's something the father delights to do, right? So if you have a spiritually wayward child, take heart. 
If you have a family member who's heard you talk about the Lord or a wife or a husband a thousand times and, and they're just as resistant to any conversation about spiritual things as they were the first day you started talking to them. Take heart. Why? Because we serve a God who works miracles. I love, I love this description in Acts 16, 14, where the father works in the heart of a woman named Lydia. What do we read? One sentence. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. One one sentence. That's a miracle. That's a miracle. The Father reveals the Son. That's where we start. That's, again, we're on this road. Remember the question, how do we wind up with this ambassadorial authority? Step one on the road is, the Father is in the business and the Father alone of revealing the Son. Step two, the Son builds his church. So look at verse 18. What does Jesus say next? And I tell you, Speaking to Peter, the U is singular here. You are Peter or Petros, and on this rock or Petra, I will build my church. And the gates of hell or Hades, better translated, shall not prevail against it. Now, here is where we have to start being really careful. Okay? Clearly, clearly, Jesus is making a connection of some sort between what Peter has just done that the faith he's just expressed in Christ and the larger community of the people of God, the church. There's some connection between these things going on here. And making that connection depends on how you identify the rock or the foundation on, on which Jesus promises to build and grow and mature the community of his people. So Protestants tend to say the rock is Peter's confession. The truth of the gospel And Roman Catholics tend to say the rock is Peter himself. And they would use this text to justify the unique authority of the Pope as the Bishop of Rome, a position that Peter supposedly filled. That's background. I think both interpretations, in a strict sense, fail to do justice to the reality of the situation here. The rock is clearly Peter. Almost every commentator the last couple decades would agree with this. Both the plain grammar of the sentence and the play on words in the original language make no sense unless it's clearly Peter. But please hear this. The rock isn't just Peter as a dude, as a guy, okay? It's Peter as a confessing believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. So from a salvation historical standpoint, did Peter exercise a unique position of leadership as the apostolic spokesman and as the founder of the church in the book of Acts? Absolutely. And that's since Peter was very much the, the rock on which Jesus began to build his church. But was Peter alone? No. 
No, Jesus continued to build his church, not just through other apostles, Ephesians 2.20, but through the ministry of other disciples who joined Peter in confessing Jesus as the Christ. And thus, I would argue, the rock is neither strictly personal, Peter is a dude, nor exclusively representative, a type for all the disciples. Okay, rather, it's Peter as the forerunner of a multitude. So, what is Jesus building Kingsway on today? What's the payoff of all that? Well, the answer is men and women who believe the truth about Jesus, right? Who, who join Peter in confessing, you're the Christ. The son of God, that the church isn't just a building, in other words. The church that Jesus is building is the community of those who are confessing Jesus as the Christ. The church isn't just those who happen to show up in this room on Sunday morning. The church is what? It's the community of those who are confessing Jesus as the Christ. That's what Jesus is building. And what a promise. Look at Look at verse 18 again. What a promise the Lord makes to us here at Kingsway. This this phrase, the the gates of Hades, it's akin to what the the prophet Isaiah and really the whole entire Old Testament calls the gates of Sheol, or the Hebrew word for the grave. So so Jesus is basically saying here in verse 18, Peter, the church I'm going to build, starting with you, because of your opening confession of faith in me, will not be vanquished even by the power of death, buddy. Persecution? Not going to prevail. Gossip and slander? Not going to prevail. Scandal and hypocrisy, not going to prevail. You, you pick, pick an expression of sin and death, they will not prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. And there's, there's not a single other organization on the face of this planet that can claim that promise. Think about that. That future. Think about that. So so know this. What's the application? When you sacrificially serve the church, when you faithfully give to the church, when you adjust your family schedule to prioritize the church, when you sell your house and move to a new city or a new country or learn a new language so you can help plant a new church, you are never wasting your life. You're devoting and dedicating your life to what death itself cannot destroy, the precious bride of Christ. Amen? The Father reveals the Son. Remember, how do we wind up with this ambassadorial authority? Step one, the Father's revealing the Son. Step two, the Son is building his church. Step three, the church represents the Son. There's a connection. The father reveals the son. The son builds the church. The church represents the son. And I want to linger on this point. Usually my earlier points, some people get after me, are longer, and then we're kind of rushing at the end. We're going to linger on this one a little bit, okay? So I've been rushing in the beginning. The church represents the son. Look, look at verse 19. Look at verse 19. Continue to speak to Peter. 
Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. At at first glance, I think that symbolic language can be crazy confusing. Keys of the kingdom? (laughs) Binding and loosing? what What in the world is going on? Well, don't freak out. Slow down. Think about it. How do keys function both in everyday life and pretty much throughout the whole Bible. What do they do? Well, they give the person who holds them power to open or close something. That's not terribly hard to see. So, for example, in Revelation 1, Jesus is described as the one who holds the keys to death. Why? Because he's the one who who unlocks the prison of death, granting resurrection life to his people. Only he can do that. You can't deliver yourself out of death. And if you want to reach backward even further to, to Isaiah 22, 22, the Lord speaks of placing on the shoulder of a household steward named Eliakim the key of the house of David. Notice what he says here about this household steward. He shall open and none shall shut. And he shall shut and none shall open. So, so in every case, I could give more examples, keys in the Bible are what? What are they? They're a symbol of authority to grant or deny access. So what do Peter and the disciples have authority to grant or deny access to? Well, it's nothing less than the kingdom of heaven. What's that? It's the redemptive rule of God over his people. The redemptive rule of God over his people. And in that sense, the church is the kingdom of God, the redemptive rule of God over his people, made visible, gone public. Remember last week we talked about where does the world look? Where where does the world look to see the redemptive rule of God over the people of God? Where do they look? Where are they going to perceive that? Well, they're intended to look to the church, the kingdom of God made visible. So, think about this. How, then, will Peter and all the disciples who come after him, members of Kingsway included, how do we exercise or use the keys of the kingdom? How do we, think of it this way, how do we wield the authority Jesus has entrusted to us to grant or deny access to the kingdom of God. That's a big deal. Well, we do it like Peter by what? By declaring the truth of the gospel, friends. By by proclaiming the judgments of God in keeping with the truth of the gospel. How do we know that? Well, I, th- I think Luke eleven fifty two is really helpful here, okay? What does Jesus say there? He gets in the face of some Jewish lawyers. I love it when Jesus gets in people's face. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You didn't enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. Well, how did the experts in Jewish law keep people from entering the kingdom of God? Through their false teaching. 
They, they took away the key of the true knowledge of Jesus Christ and all that he has done to bring us into right relationship with God. And we see the exact same issue at the beginning of Matthew 16 where Jesus warns his disciples, be on guard against the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Why? Because their teaching is denying people access to the kingdom of God because they're not pointing to Christ through whom alone we enter God's kingdom. So what happens? Think about this, Christian. What, what happens? Remember this church. As we explain the truth of the gospel, when we speak like Peter in Acts 4.12, and there's salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Well, what's happening in that moment? Well, we are holding open the door to the kingdom of God. And we are inviting people to come in. The gospel that we proclaim is both a key that opens, no one comes to the Father through faith in the Son, and a key that shuts, there is salvation in no one else. It opens, it shuts. But please notice, back to verse 19, that proclaiming the truth of the gospel is not the only way that we exercise the authority Jesus has entrusted to us. Look back at verse 19. We also have a responsibility to bind and loose something on earth that corresponds to something that is bound and loosed in heaven. So, what are we binding and loosing? I'm going to give you the answer and then I'll explain where we see that. We're binding and loosing people. How do we bind or loose them? By affirming their profession of faith through baptism and membership in the local church or denying their profession of faith by withholding baptism or removing them from membership in the local church. Where do I get that? Well, listen to Jesus in Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, up the ante, brought in the circle, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So what's going on in those verses? Well, what Jesus is instructing us, friends, and how we respond when a fellow Christian willfully persists in living a life that is not in keeping with their profession of faith. We, we lovingly appeal to them to, to repent and to submit to Christ. So what are, what are we doing when we're doing that? We're declaring the judgment of God. Realize that. We're saying Obeying Jesus looks like this in real life. Obeying Jesus does not look like that in real life. 
And friend, Christian, that is one of the most loving things you could ever do for someone. Why? Why? Because it's the path of obedient submission to King Jesus that is the only path of the greatest joy the world has ever known. That's why it's the most loving thing you could do. But, but what if they keep running down the path of sin and death? What if they say, la, 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 la? Well, eventually, if they continue ignoring our appeals, what do we do? We remove them from membership in the church. We kick them out and say, don't you ever come in this building again. No, we don't. No, we don't. We choose to no longer treat them as a Christian. Choosing instead to treat them for who they appear to actually be because of the way they're living. Somebody who's not interested in following Jesus. When Jesus, when Jesus says, let him be to you as a, as a Gentile or tax collector, he's not saying rudely ignore them and stop caring for them because they're jerks. He's employing metaphors that the Jews themselves used to describe men and women who before Christ came were not part of the people of God. So treat them for who they clearly are. They're not part of the people of God. And, and remember, remember if you were here last week, why is it so important that the world is crystal clear on who is part of the people of God and who is not. Why is that so important? Because it's in seeing the people of God for who they really are that the world sees Jesus. That's why that's so critical. So what is the act of removing someone from membership in the church in hope that they will come to their spiritual senses, repent, and follow Christ? Well, it's an example of the church exercising the authority God has entrusted to the body, the entire body. Notice the the you in Matthew 18 is broadened beyond Peter to include all Jesus' disciples to either affirm or deny the authenticity of a profession of faith. So think about this. Jesus is saying, this is a stunning claim, individual Christians don't have the authority from God to decide whether or not they are genuine followers of Christ on their own. That's not a decision we have been authorized by God to independently make. The church has a critical role to play in affirming True professions of faith, working under the leadership and oversight of her elders. So, in other words, if you want to know whether you're really a Christian, don't look into the quiet of your own heart and independently decide for yourself. That's the point. Listen to the body that Jesus himself has authorized to make that determination. So, has a local church that preaches the gospel, friend, affirmed the authenticity of your profession of faith on earth. If they have, then you have good reason to believe that you are right with the Lord in heaven. Has a local church that preaches the gospel never affirmed through baptism and membership the authenticity of your profession? Or have they stopped affirming the authenticity of your profession through a process of discipline? Then you should be seriously concerned that you are in fact not right with the Lord in heaven. So does our God-given authority 
to affirm true professions of faith and deny false professions of faith by deciding who we welcome into membership through baptism, sustain in membership through the Lord's Supper, or remove from membership through discipline, make the church judgmental. Yes. I'm going to say that again. Does our God-given authority to affirm professions of faith through baptism and membership sustain and oversee professions of faith by continuing to share the Lord's Supper or deny that profession of faith by removing them from membership and the privilege of sharing the Lord's Supper? Does that make the church judgmental? Yes. And in the most loving way imaginable. Nothing is more loving than taking the word of the gospel, the truth about Jesus and what it means to follow him, and using that standard, the standard of judgment God himself has established to tell someone whether they have reason for hope or fear as to the eternal destiny of their soul. Love always makes judgments. Non-Christian friend listening to me, Love, your love, always makes judgments. Why? Because love says, this is good and I like it. This is not good and I don't. What the church does is no different, except we seek to make judgments on behalf of God, keeping with the judgments that he has already issued through his word. I I love how Jonathan Lehman ties all this together. Listen, what is important for us to recognize here is that Jesus has charged the church with speaking for him on earth, and he wants all the world to know it. (laughs) That's right. The point is not whether the church can omnisciently or divinely discern every individual's ultimate state at any given moment. The point is that the world should heed the church's promises and warnings. Amen. Because Jesus has given the church authority to speak on his behalf as an ambassador, and he will come and vindicate its words. Brothers and sisters, as as we teach, as we explain, as, as we hold one another accountable to living out the truth of the gospel, we're we're not sharing or enforcing or requiring or insisting on our personal religious beliefs or opinions. We're not. We're issuing a divine summons to repentance, faith, and obedience to Christ, to the truth of the gospel, with the authority that Jesus himself has delegated to us as his representative. Don't buy the lie that in proclaiming God's judgments on his behalf, you are foisting your personal morality that should be kept oh so private on somebody else. That's not true. What are you doing? You have been authorized by God, the church has been authorized by God to declare God's judgments on his behalf, which have been revealed to us through his word. That's the whole point of the correspondence between the church's judgments on earth and the Lord's judgments in heaven. We're we're 
the representatives of the Son. The church represents the Son as his ambassador. So, in case you haven't noticed, we have covered a crazy bit of ground this morning. (laughs) I love the fact that the men and women of this church want to think hard about the Word of God. So, right now I'm going to end with six points of very practical application. Only six. Okay? And we're going to fly through these, which is why I needed some sugar. First, remember, friend, that nothing is more important than what you believe about Jesus. Nothing. Okay? Who do you say he is? Be honest. And then follow Peter's example in confessing him as the Christ. Second, if you believe Jesus is the Christ, don't look down on people who don't. Humbly recognize that it's only because God's worked in your heart that following Jesus makes any sense to you. Third, if you're trusting and obeying him as the son of God, then devote your life to edifying and serving and building up the church. The power of death, the gates of hell, will not prevail against it. Our triumph is guaranteed. And don't lose heart or park on the sideline when church life and relationships are difficult. Our our confidence for our future isn't in whether or not our corporate life at any given moment feels easy or hard. Our confidence for the future is in the simple fact that Jesus is building his church. And he's not about to stop, so we better not stop or run away. Fourth, as you speak the truth about Jesus... And, and urge and aid your brothers and sisters, help them to submit to the word in every area of life, please remember that you do so with the authority of Christ himself. That's the courage point. He owns the keys. He could only give them because he had them to begin with. And he's entrusted them to us as his representative in the world. So don't stick that authority in your pocket. Don't pull into your driveway and hide it behind your garage door. Use your God-given authority. Speak the truth and then help your brothers and sisters to live the truth. Don't shove your keys. Use them. Fifth, take church membership and baptism seriously. Take it seriously. Jesus has authorized the church, that's the whole point, to affirm or deny the authenticity of your profession of faith. And that means attempts at Lone Ranger Christianity, consisting of merely Sunday morning attendance, are at best an act of arrogant presumption, and at worst, an act of spiritual deception. Finally, remember authority and correction are good things. Authority and correction are good things. I Yes, we'll go here. I see this over and over again as a pastor. As soon as a church, as soon as a pastor especially, says something that communicates anything short of a rousing endorsement 
of whatever a particular professing Christian wants to do, they book it for another church that is more accepting and loving. Brothers and sisters, all that we do, discipline included, must be filled with love. But we do not worship love. We worship God. Love is not God. God is love. We worship him, and because we worship him, he tells us what is loving and unloving, what is good and what is evil, what is, what is right and what is wrong. So if a fellow member of your church or a pastor of your church comes to you and says, hey, friend, you're not living the way a Christian is supposed to live. Don't book it. Humble yourself and listen. Listen. Listen as they share God's word for you. And then don't you dare respond as if you are the ultimate spiritual authority in your life. You're not. Recognize the responsibility the perfect Savior has knowingly given his imperfect church to oversee your profession of faith. So submitting to the authority of the church it is not about adopting a, well, whatever the pastor says goes attitude. Don't, don't you dare do that. It, it's about recognizing the church under the oversight of her elders speaks on the king's behalf with the king's authority communicating what the king has already said. So don't con yourself into thinking that your issue is with that church. Oh my word. When in reality, your issue is with the authority of God expressed through his church. Jesus builds his church by entrusting those who confess his name with spiritual authority to declare God's judgments on his behalf. Friends, that is why unique identity, unique mission, unique authority, the church is a community like no other. May that give us courage to walk in the fear of the Lord and use the authority God's given us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that even in controversial passages, you help. <laughs> and you guide and you strengthen and you give courage. And Lord Jesus, I pray this morning as we have walked through deep woods, that the net effect of all of this would be an increase in holy courage among the members of this congregation. And we pray that you would make us bold and we pray you would make us confident and we are both humbled and grateful that you've given us the privilege of communicating your judgments on your behalf with the confidence that you have already spoken through your word. Lord Jesus, make us courageous. Banish timidity. Teach us to practice humble orthodoxy. In your son's name we pray. Amen.